can't operate a Tesla using a Model A's instruction manual. So how do we expect our healthcare professionals to provide the best care if they don't have the most updated literature? We sit down with Denver Public Health nurse Melanie Rogers to discuss the movement that she spearheads, simply titled, hashtag no journals, no evidence-based practice. Let's have a conversation. It's Nurse Nation. live in Colorado and I went to nursing school, graduated in 2010 and started in public health as soon as I finished. I worked at a small rural health department for about a year and then moved back to Denver and started at a more, uh, a larger health department uh, working in as kind of a public health generalist. Um, I do family planning, uh, immunizations, communicable disease control, uh, HIV prevention, um, and syringe exchange. I also do a lot out in the community with community engagement and uh, education to varying audiences, such as parents or youth, mostly around sexual health topics. So take me through a typical day of Melanie Rogers, public health nurse. Um, so in a typical day, or let's go with a typical week. So in a typical week, I would be uh, seeing patients in a, in a sexual health setting. So I would be seeing people coming in for, you know, refills or counseling on birth control methods. I would be seeing people for sexually transmitted infection treatment. I'd be seeing people for testing for HIV or hepatitis C. And, you know, while those might be like the focus of what we're doing, you know, we're also looking at what are those bigger things that are going on in your life? Do you do you have a primary care doctor? Do you know where to go for primary care? You know, if you don't have health insurance in, in our area, you know, do you know where you can go for that? Do your children have a pediatrician? You know, do you need a referral, like a referral for other things that we might screen for, like domestic violence or, um, or, or housing or food resources? Um, I would also be seeing people for immunizations, and that would be anywhere from each two months to 100 plus. I don't do as much in the syringe services anymore, but I might be um, if they're really busy, I might be called to go help with that or do an HIV or hepatitis C test for somebody in that program who who's requesting testing. Um, I might be going out into the community to do a presentation on, you know, sexual health topics for, you know, high schoolers, or we might be facilitating a conversation with parents at a elementary or junior high school about like like how to talk to your how to talk to your children um, about sex and choices related to sex or like just the bigger overall, you know, how, how do we have the period conversation? Now, New York State is having one hell of a time with a measles outbreak and MMR vaccines and vaccination rates. What are some of the public health concerns that you're seeing in Colorado? I mean, if we're just talking vaccines, Colorado, where I live, does have the lowest consistently <laughs> um, vaccination compliance rate or coverage really? rate. For children, yeah, we're we're dead last, number fifty every year for. Oh wow, what's the what do you think is the cause of that? Um, how extraordinarily easy it is to get yourself an exemption, um, because gotcha. I mean we we have medical exemptions, sure everywhere does, but we also have religious, philosophical, and personal, and they're really easy to get. So, 
Um, I think, you know, that's, you know, vaccines are a problem. I don't know that, you know, I guess, you know, what, what's the definition of a problem? Is it the thing that's taking the most number of lives? Is it the thing that's the most morbidity? Like, there's a lot of ways you could measure that. I think, you know, if we're thinking in terms of like the social determinants of health, sorry, I'm a public health nurse, this is where I go, you know, when, yeah, okay. you know, when, we're, when we're looking at, you know, the, the larger picture of things, you know, in, in many areas of Colorado, that cost of housing has just exploded and, you know, people having to pay such a high portion of their um, of their household income on housing expenditure makes it harder for them to do other things, you know, because they have to work so much or, you know, there's not, um, you know, there's mental health is such a huge problem here as well. You know, we have uh, a problem where, you know, the psychiatric inpatient beds in the, the, the public, you know, the, the one or two public hospitals that provide that if you weren't part of, if you weren't in the criminal justice system, like you weren't going to get a bed, even if you needed one, you know, so there's a shortage there. There's, um, you know, everywhere has a problem with climate change and the impacts that that will have, you know, the air quality in Denver has gotten so bad. It's exacerbating, you know, a lot of respiratory conditions. There's problems where we have a really high suicide rate here, which I think a lot of it might tie into some of the hopelessness that people might feel. Um, and that is just so impossible or very, very hard to get ahead or feel like they're getting ahead if, you know, they've lived here all their lives and now they can't afford a house anymore because, you know, any decent house is $500,000 in the Denver area. Um, and gosh, I can't afford that. How are my patients? No. Certainly not, you know, or generally don't have the same income that I do. How are they making it? Like, I have no idea. Now, Colorado has seen a boost in population since they legalized cannabis, one of the first states legalized legalized cannabis. Are you saying that there's a socioeconomic issue directly correlated to this increase in population? I mean, I don't know that people are coming here solely for that. I mean, especially as other states have chosen to decriminalize it. You know, there there is a population boom, but I think part of it too is that there's, you know, there's not really much in, in the way of incentives for affordable housing development, you know, if you're gotcha. if you're a, a real estate company um, or an investor, you're going to get way more bang for your buck if you you know build another block of luxury apartments than you are if you're going to you know really commit to you know building something that people who use Section Eight housing vouchers can afford to live in. Circle back to what you said about the air quality in Denver and Colorado. Because I was always under the impression that people actually moved to Colorado for the air quality. Now you're saying that there's some sort of issue going on where the air quality actually isn't as good as I thought in Colorado? In Denver specifically, there's a problem of what's called inversion, uh, which is, uh, again, I'm a nurse, I'm not a meteorologist, but no, no, no. You know, it's, it's, it's something in like where the you know, there's the mountains are right by the city and, you know, the, the mountains being there causes like these changes in, I think, barometric pressure. I'm really not sure exactly with the meteorological phenomenon, but basically what it results into is like the air pollution just sits on Denver and it doesn't move. Gotcha. Until there's a really big wind or a storm comes and it just sits there. And it's like, I think we're like number 10 in the nation right now. 
so I'm sure as a result of that, you guys have to see a lot of respiratory issues, right? A lot of maybe you know, pneumonia, flu, respiratory infection. Well, my, my focus as a public health nurse is a little bit more on like sexual health. So I'm not as aware mm -hmm. of what might be happening like in the acute care settings. Okay. Uh, but I know, you know, I can tell you anecdotally, yeah, I've seen a lot of patients coming through whose asthma is, you know, being exacerbated, whose, you know, emphysema is really suffering for the just the the terrible air quality that we have right now so then to circle all the way back around what are your thoughts as a public health nurse on vaccines and the mandated vaccines in downstate new york on, on the like on the purely public health spectrum like getting the herd rate immunity is what you know is what helps to stop and prevent outbreaks from happening mm -hmm. but i'm not you know i'm not in favor of like holding somebody down and forcing them to get something like that mm -hmm. violates autonomy. Uh, but if, you know, if the, if the, you know, if you make it less convenient to exempt yourself um, or exempt someone from receiving a vaccine where there's not like a medical contraindication for that exemption, then I think, you know, more people are more likely to to, to get the vaccine be receptive um, just to kind of as an example like in in california if you look at the the kindergarten immunization coverage before they changed the laws so that there's only medical exemption is like not enough because you know generally with measles you need like a 95 percent immunization rate to have herd immunity and it was definitely below that but if you're looking at the immunization rates for the subsequent years after you know that law passed after the measles outbreak at Disneyland, it's, it's gone up. You know, if, we, if you make it so that it's less convenient to get that exemption, then more people are likely to follow. I guess, you know, when, then it comes to like, at what point is it convenience versus coercion? And I don't, yeah. Let's get into why you're here. No journals, no evidence-based practice. Why don't you give the audience a little insight on how that all started? Yes, so I started uh, graduate school in the beginning of 2016, and I suddenly had access to a university library, which I hadn't really missed that much. But once I had access to a library again, and as I was as I was completing my assignments for my graduate courses, you know, I started you know thinking about things uh, that I do with my with my job, and you know started to use that resource to help me find things that might. Be related to my job, not just my schoolwork. And then when I finished my MPH program at the end of 2018, you know, come come January, uh, I did not have university library access anymore, and I felt very shut off about that. And I was kind of salty about it, but figured that it just might be the way it was going to be. And then in March, I was having insomnia one night, and as one does, one might scroll around on Twitter, and I found a post from uh, Brian Castrucci of the De Beaumont Foundation, who was in a similar boat to me where he had just finished his graduate education and needed continued access to find evidence for evidence-based practice at his, at his workplace, which did not provide such access. And he, he jokingly asked, you know, we'll trade lecture for library access. And that kind of really touched off a nerve for me. And in, you know, the, the three o'clock insomnia, 
grumpiness, I put together a little Twitter thread about how that resonated with me and how the lack of journal access had impacts impacts me dually as a nurse and a public health worker because I'm expected to keep abreast of two areas of literature, not just one. And you know, rolled over, went back to sleep, and in the morning. I woke up and my phone had blown up with Twitter notifications with other people who had read it and had that resonate with them as well. Uh, and that's that might have been where it ended, except for one person who responded to my Twitter thread was uh, Barbara Glickstein, who is a nursing media research strategist over at George Washington University. Uh, she's also one of the authors of the Woodhull II study, which, if you're not familiar with it, um, looks at how often, is a repeat of a previous study done in the 90s that looked at how often nurses are, are, source, are cited as sources it, by journalists when, you know, stories are running that might have a, something to do with health. And the Woodhull, the original study that looked at that found that nurses were included about 4% of the time in, in journalism. And when the study was repeated by Barbara Glickstein and her people that she worked with on that, it had actually declined to 2%. Not really statistically significant, but it's really disheartening to hear that, you know, in 20 years, not much has improved with regards to nurses being you know, uh, seen as a credible source by media. And so she, uh, so when she had responded to my Twitter chain, she thought she had, she, she, she had said, you know, so, okay, this is, this is good. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> and I kind of hemmed and hawed a bit. And then she suggested, well, why don't you make a hashtag and keep tweeting about it and see where it goes? And so I did. Um, that's how the hashtag uh, no journals, no EVP got started. And that's kind of really where the conversations took off from there. And then from there, we talked pre-recording about another influence, someone who took you from hashtag no journals, no evidence-based practice to expand that from beyond the Twitterverse to something more, uh, have a little bit more creation behind it, something a little bit more lengthy, something to help get the word and other platform out there with, with blogs specifically. Um, who was that influence? Who helped you out break away from the Twitterverse and expand that conversation? I happened to read and have this resonate was Robin Kogan, who is a, a school nurse out of New Jersey. She's also on faculty at Rutgers with their school nurse um, graduate program. And she runs a blog called The Relentless School Nurse. And uh, she'll usually have a guest blog once in a while. And she invited me to do a, a guest blog piece on the, just, you know, just writing in general about my, you know, how this affected me personally. And with that writing, I kind of curated the, the conversations on Twitter that had been happening up until that point with the no journals, no EBP. And as I was writing, you know, it just kind of came out that you know, in nursing school, I had this access. And then when I finished nursing school, that was it. And then when I started graduate school, I had access again. When I finished, that was it. But these, and then that there's, there's, other, there's other roundabout solutions. You know, people might access things like ResearchGate or SciHub to find the papers that they need. Or maybe they might have a coworker who still has an academic affiliation that they can 
you know, beg, borrow, or steal uh, a login from. Uh, but these solutions are are piecemeal. You know, we should nurses in practice should not have to resort to favors from coworkers and backdoor hacks to have access to the scientific journals to maintain our knowledge of current best practices in our respective specialties. Like when I was reflecting on this, it really the thing I had learned in nursing school where it often takes ten or twenty years from research to trickle down into practice really resonated. I mean, if, it, if it's so hard to access the research, no wonder it takes so long for evidence to turn into evidence-based practice. You know, we should not have to rely on our patients to educate us on their disorders. You know, we should have access to things to, so that we can maintain that body of knowledge. Um, and also, you know, it's it's a it's a large problem in in nursing education. I feel when nursing students are are sent to their clinical rotations, most of us are familiar with the model where they're not just working with their clinical instructor. You know, they're paired with a nurse on the unit or a nurse out in the community for their clinical day, and that nurse is not you know, being paid by the university for this teaching time, but also that nurse in the course of his or her workday might not have access to journals in order to maintain that, again, that body of knowledge for evidence-based practice. And, you know, so for, for you know, we want student nurses to learn the current most up-to-date evidence-based practice, but how, you know, it's learning that in, in, as it's applied to actual nursing practice that they're participating in and observing as part of their clinical days, you know, it's it's a it's a problem if if those nurses don't have access to that type of resource so that they can then pass on that knowledge to nursing students. I mean, it's just it's just like a self-perpetuating problem no. that we need to solve systemically. So what do we think the actual issue is then? Do you think it's just because publishers are looking to make money. It's strictly a financial issue. You know, where has the conversation even taken on Twitter? What are people thinking? What are they saying? I, I mean, I think yes. I mean, as, as the as the Twitter conversation has evolved, you know, I've I've learned a lot of nuance that I might not have known before because you know I, I work in practice. I'm I'm not an academic. I'm not. I don't have a university affiliation unless I'm a, a student at the time. Um, so I'm less or was less familiar with things like the publishing industry or how, you know, nursing academics might be pressured to publish as, as part of their, you know, their tenure package. And it might be easier to publish in something to where it's behind a paywall because they might be, in order to have their research be in an open access paper, they might have to pay out of their own pocket to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that kind of ties back into, okay, so if the research isn't accessible, then uh, then nobody's going to read it unless you are also, you know, having a institutional login with your, with your academic affiliation. Um, but it seems like, it seems to me that the, the enormous cost of maintaining subscriptions to journals uh, may, or not may, it does play a very large role in this. But I remember reading that the University of California canceled its El Sevier subscription, which is enormous because that publishing house houses hundreds, if not thousands of journals that are related to nursing. 
So, uh, you know, if if the University of California, which is a, is a really big university system, um, is is opting not to continue their subscription to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of journals, like how how does that impact the access of the information of that's in those journals um, getting into the hands of people who might need it? So, and, you know, and at the individual level, I mean, we can't afford, like, nobody really can afford to pay 40 or 50 bucks per journal article that they want to read. And, you know, municipal libraries might not have the buying power to maintain, like, anything beyond CINAHL as, as a source for nursing information. So I think, you know, the cost of it definitely plays, the cost of it in multiple areas, not just the subscription to the journal, but the cost of the researcher to publish and if that's not written into their research funding um, to make it open access, then that probably plays a pretty large role in the inaccessibility of these papers to a lot of people. But I would also kind of turn it back to, you know, a lot of research is funded by taxpayer dollars via the NIH um, and all of the, the branches under that, you know, through the National Academies of Sciences, and is taxpayer funded. And so you know, just like, you know, we all have access to the roads, we all have access to the National Forest Services that taxpayer dollars pay for. Why don't we have access to the research <laughs> and the knowledge from that, you know, in the easily accessible to, for everybody, not just people in healthcare, but, you know, ordinary citizens who might want to learn more about a perspective. So then enlighten me on the process then. Because to me, why can't an institution like Kale just say, all right, you know, this is our research, we're going to publish it in our own sort of, you know, publication is it just because these journals are already peer-reviewed they already have you know mechanisms in place to ensure that the data collection is is being conducted thoroughly and that the the data that we're receiving isn't just bullshit my understanding of it um yes you know peer review is the big part of it otherwise you know we could just make up our own journals and call and you know but then they're not journals of quality because you know necessarily if they're not you know being be, being reviewed by the peers in our in our disciplines um who you know outside of just our own academic affiliation um you know we want input from other people with a broader range of knowledge than might be just our local little microcosm but as far as as to my understanding you know say you know whatever university gets a, you know, has a research idea, they write a grant, they get it funded through NIH or other bodies, they conduct the research, they, you know, synthesize it, and they write their papers, you know, and then that gets submitted to, to whichever journals they think might best fit the work that they've done. I think, you know, at the university level, there may be you know, a, a certain impetus to publish in certain journals that have what's called a higher impact factor, which I think is a ranking of journals by like how often their papers get cited. It might be that the more papers you have with higher impact factors, you know, the more likely you are to be able to advance an academic career as far as gaining a tenure position or securing other research funding if you can show that you that you're able to you know produce this high quality content and have it accepted in high quality journals all right so then what's next what are the next steps that hashtag no journals no evidence-based practice has to take what are you looking for nurses to do in order to advance your cause you know, how are we going to get this information more 
readily available, more accessible to the people that are within the profession? Well, first, I would like to um, kind of put a plug for the action steps that we identified in our no, hashtag no journals, no ABP conversations, because there's a role for everybody to play. Um, so first off, let's start with academic programs, you know, investing in students as lifelong learners in healthcare means making sure that they have continued access to, you know, journals and library services after they've graduated. Ensuring library access for alumni is something that any academic program can do, even if it's a, like, okay, you've graduated here, you know, pay a $30 yearly subscription, like that would be fine, but we need to make sure that more graduates continue to have access to journals. We would also encourage, you know, nursing schools specifically, but also any other healthcare professions program to, you know, if if part of your program involves sending your students to community preceptors that are not paid for by the your university, then, you know, making sure that those preceptors have access to you know, your library services is I think the like a bare minimum level of support that you should be providing um, to help make sure that your students are learning from people who are up to date on evidence-based practice. Have any of these steps that you guys have taken so far, have any of them shown any sort of success? Have you been able to make any sort of headway so far with changing anybody's policies or procedures? We have had some universities you know, we, at least one university has changed their policy about preceptors having a library login because of these no journals, no ABP conversations. So oh, wow. I'm excited about that. Um, we also encourage other practice settings of health professions to provide their employees with access to scientific literature. Um, so workplaces with an academic affiliation might have this already, but not everybody's so lucky. So, you know, workplaces need to explore creative strategies to provide employees with the literature that they need to do their job. So as an example, for public health departments, they can explore a partnership with the National Network of Libraries of Medicine um, to participate in the Public Health Digital Library Program, which provides a pretty wide access. We would also encourage professional organizations to really step it up um, to help your members stay abreast of the, of the literature that's relevant to your discipline. Um, we, in, in particular, I'd like to give a shout out to Sigma Theta Ta, the International Honor Society of Nursing, which maintains the Virginia Henderson Global Nursing e-repository, which is an open access collection of journal articles. And these papers are open to all nurses, not just members That's of Sigma. That's a good point there. You know, professional organizations, you know, even I can't believe nursing unions don't really have anything that's kind of trying to push more information to their nurses, uh, something for these nurses to have, like what you talked about, some sort of open database. I think they, they should be able to take a little bit more of a, of a role in that. I think a lot of, you know, other professional societies and organizations could um, make an impact by curating a similar library. And, you know, societies, professional organizations also influence the sciences of the professions that they represent. So encouraging researchers in your profession or specialty to practice open science in the name of collegiality, especially as they publish, is really nice. Um, there's a website that we would refer folks to for the precepts of open science, which is kind of like the bigger picture of not just open access for like your published journal findings, but your, your open science for the whole way through your research process. Um, and that would be https colon slash slash osf.io. Um, so it's Open Science Foundation. Brittany. 
And what about the people that are actually putting in the research, putting in the time? What are some things that research scientists, you know, nursing research professionals could do to help the cause, to get their information out there to more people? Um, we would encourage researchers and scientists to try to take steps to publish your works as open access where possible. So maybe when applying for funding, you know, include a line item for open access uh, publication. We would also encourage, you know, researchers to make preprints available, which may be, you know, determined by which journal you're working with for your work. But, you know, having those preprints accessible is one way of helping make sure even if your final paper isn't isn't open access, a lot of times journals will give researchers, you know, permissions for the preprints to be widely distributed. So, you know, making those available is good. Communicating you know, research should communicate that if, you know, pe people email them directly, they can send them a copy of their paper, even if it's, you know, behind a paywall otherwise at a journal. So not everybody knows that. So helping to publicize that for the general public and also, you know, nurses who might need access to your paper would be good. Um, and making sure that people are publishing in reputable journals. You know, there, there's lots of open access stuff that isn't necessarily reputable, you know, where, you know, anybody can submit a paper and anybody can publish. You know, we don't want low quality science just because it's accessible science so making sure that they're still publishing in reputable journals is good and then this leads to you know kind of our my biggest most favorite probably sustainable systems level solution to this problem of not having access to journals um, is modeled in the state of Washington, where there's this thing that came into existence called HeelWab, and it's basically this online journal access that's available to most health sciences licensed professionals in the state of Washington. It's a partnership through the Washington Department of Health and the University of Washington, you know, as you are paying for to renew your you know, your nursing license or whatever license you have, a small part of those licensure renewal fees go to maintaining this system. And then you are able to log in online from anywhere, you know, not just at your local library branch, not just while you're at work, but any computer that you has internet, you can log into it. And you have access to 5,000 different journals um, and all the papers they're in. So, you know, that to me, you know, represents probably the best possibility of making sure that everybody who's at least in, in healthcare professions land um, has access to the, the information and research that's the most up-to-date and cutting edge that they might need to be successful in maintaining evidence-based practice. So, you know, agitating your local um, legislature for the mirroring of such a system in your own, you know, in, in your own area, I think is really the way to go. So, and I, I like, this makes me want to move to Washington. <laughs> I wish we had something like that in Colorado. And also to join us in the conversation on Twitter, more, more nurses need to tweet. So now I know you're in the publication phase of your thesis for your master's program. Can you give us any details about what that project was about? I don't want you to get too detailed because I don't want to spoil it for the readers out there. I want people to actually go and, and look at your your thesis because you did put a lot of hard work into that. But is there any insight you can give us on to uh, what your thesis was on back in school? Um, well, I think I can describe the work at least. Um, so the university that I did my MPH at is University of New England. And once a year, the nursing department takes a, an interprofessional group of, of health profession students and faculty 
um, out to uh, Ghana, where they have a partnership with the church there to help set up community clinics with, uh, in partnership with local Ghanaian health professionals. And I did a study on health literacy to, to kind of age to get a baseline measurement of what health literacy, you know, levels might be in the community that's being served by these clinics and to get um, an idea of what sociodemographic factors might, might, you know, have a relationship with levels of health literacy and also then to get the community's input on, on health communication between, you know, patients and their healthcare professionals or public health professionals that they interact with, you know, what they felt was, well, how they perceived the quality of communications to be, if they felt like they could ask questions for clarification, if they understood things that their healthcare providers told them, and if they had any thoughts on how, you know, health communications might be improved so that patients can understand the information and instructions from their healthcare providers in order to help manage their, you know, their health problems. Because as we know, as nurses with health literacy, you know, is a huge thing in what we do in patient education, you know, with the United States, especially, you know, how we rely so heavily on, you know, these giant, enormous discharge summaries that nobody ever reads. And we might have like five minutes to do discharge education. Um, and how effective is that really? Or how, how much conversation can you really have in a 10 minute office visit when you have multiple mm -hmm. problems? <laughs> And I think that's a good point. I mean, communication and not only the communication, but how we deliver that communication, how we deliver the information, and then verifying that the people we're taking care of understand that information. You know, Melanie, I do want to thank you for coming on and having this conversation about information exchange and at all levels, especially with your hashtag, no journals, no evidence-based practice. It's great to see someone have a passion, spearhead a movement, take to social media, you know, especially in a profession like healthcare that's always evolving and we want it to evolve because it's going to help not only the healthcare professionals but the outcomes of our patients as well. Melanie, let the audience know where can they find you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? What's the hashtag we're following here? Let everyone know how to get involved in the conversation. At M-R-O-G-E-R-S-R-N. At M-Rogers-R-N. So hashtag no journals no ABV. Again, Melanie, thank you so much. And thank you for um, letting us use, you know, yet one more platform to kind of get the, the message about this out there. And we'll definitely be plugging this in our next uh, update on Robin Kogan's Relentless School Nurse blog. So. And that concludes another great episode here at Nurse Nation Podcast. Again, thank you guys for making us part of your day. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, hit the follow button, hit the like button, hit the share button. Thanks for joining the conversation. It's Nurse Nation.